Thanks, Heathcliff. Uh, you'll find uh, next to the Bible passage for today a little outline there that might be helpful for you uh, as we go along. G'day, my name's Ben. Uh, I'm one of the staff with the Christian Union uh, here, and it's great to uh, be here for the first public meeting of the year. And here you are, uh, as you stand on the edge of the promised land. After all those years of wandering through the wilderness of school, you're finally entering UWA. Uh, Your parents and teachers promised it to you, didn't they? Uh, They said if you stick at your studies, if you do your homework, then one day you will no longer be a slave. One day you will no longer be subject to forced labour in school. You will enter a land where you're free to go to lectures or not. A land where you can go to labs or tutes or not. A land flowing with beer and coffee where everyone can sit under their own shade sail and oak tree and the land looks good. Although you have heard that there might be some problems. For one thing, uh, this new land, although it looks good, it is potentially kind of scary. A school might have been slavery, but at least it was familiar. And you've heard that this new land might not be entirely empty. It might actually be occupied by people who could potentially be enemies Pagans, sexually immoral people, drunkards, and they might be out to destroy the people of God. And there are giants in the land as well. We call them professors. (laughs) And they love nothing more than to mock and to ridicule Christians. And then again, you've lost your leaders as well. Your teachers, your youth group leaders, your mentors, they've brought you this far, but they can go no further. Will you be able to safely enter this land? Will it be all that you hoped for? Well, there are some similarities uh, between where we find ourselves today and where ancient Israel found themselves three and a half thousand years ago. Uh, They'd been rescued from slavery in Egypt by God through Moses. And after 40 years, they've reached the border of the promised land of Canaan. And it's a good land, an abundant land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And yet, the land is occupied by the Canaanites, a people renowned for their evil, for idolatry, for sexual immorality, even for child sacrifice. But at least Israel had their great leader Moses with them, right? Here's how the book of Deuteronomy, immediately before Joshua ends. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Yeah, we've got scary enemies, but at least we've got Moses, right? But then have a look at the opening words of Joshua. After the death of Moses... The servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. It's a good land, but there are scary enemies, and Israel's greatest leader has just died. Will Israel be able to enter the land? Will God's promises come true? And that's really what the whole book of Joshua is about. 
It's about God keeping his promises. Uh, The story so far is that God has made the world. He's made it good. He's made humans to rule the world well under him. But humans have rebelled against him. They've decided that they will decide what is good and evil for themselves rather than trusting in God. And God's punishment for that has been to cast them out of the Garden of Eden, out of the land, the good land that they were in, and facing death and judgment. But then, uh, and we looked at this last year uh, in public meetings, so if you want to go to the website and listen to some of the talks on the podcast, you can do that. Uh, Then God turned up to Abraham, just a random guy from Iraq, And he promises Abraham these things that are going to reverse the effects of sin. He promises a special relationship between Abraham and God. That Abraham will become a great nation with its own land again. With lots of offspring. And that through him, all the nations on earth will be blessed. And sure enough, uh, Abraham's offspring do multiply in number. There's thousands, millions of them now. They've been stuck in Egypt as slaves for 400 years uh, without any land, though. And so God, through Moses, brings them out of Egypt to the edge of the promised land, to the edge of Canaan. But actually, when he did that, Israel chickened out. They didn't enter the land. They failed to trust God. And that's why they've been wandering in the desert for the last 40 years. So the question we hit at the start of Joshua is, what's going to happen this time? Will Israel trust God? Will they be able to enter the land? Will God keep his promises? God insists that the promise of the land still stands. If you have a look there at the second half of verse 2, he says to Joshua, Now then, you and all these people, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them. To the Israelites, I'll give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. God insists that he will keep his promises. This will be Israel's land. And God promises that he'll be with their new leader, just like he was with Moses. So verse 5... No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Yes, entering the land is going to be scary, but God will keep his promises. That's why he keeps telling Joshua to be strong and courageous. I mean, it's not something that you typically say to someone when you think everything is going to be easy, do you? I suspect you don't say to your friends, be strong and courageous, buy that chai latte. (laughs) No, you don't say that. You say it when things are really difficult, when they're going to have trouble hanging in there, when they're feeling weak and terrified. And you can understand why Joshua and Israel might feel like that. I mean, what can they, a ragtag bunch of people who have been wandering through the desert for 40 years, do against these massive fortified cities of Canaan, against people with serious weapons, not just swords but cavalry 
and chariots, which are kind of like the tanks of their day. But God reminds Joshua that it is God who saves. He brought Israel out of Egypt under Moses, and he'll bring them into Canaan under Joshua. God saves. In fact, that's what Joshua's name means. Joshua, or Yeshua, to use the Hebrew, means Yahweh saves. God will lead his people through Yeshua to inherit the land that he has promised them in spite of their enemies. But who is the enemy here? In one sense, it's the Canaanites. But actually, as you read the chapter, you might have noticed that there's no mention of the Canaanites at all. In fact, I think what we're seeing here is that the Canaanites are what uh, the former coach of the LA Lakers, Pat Riley, used to call peripheral opponents. They're not the main enemy. (coughs) The Canaanites are not mentioned at all in this chapter. And what God zeroes in on is the real threat to Israel, the real enemy. Have a look at verses 7 and 8. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn to it from uh, do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. So the physical enemy of Israel is not the ultimate enemy of Israel. Their real enemy is spiritual. The danger that Israel face is not bad people out there. It's the fact that they are bad people in here. The tendency that all of us are born enslaved by, the tendency to turn away from God, to rebel against him, to stop trusting in God for our future. And in fact, Joshua doesn't seem at all confident that Israel will trust God for their future. Uh, You can see it in the rest of the chapter. Uh, In verse 11, he tells the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you'll cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. Uh, This is where the three tribes are uh, here uh, that he talks about in verses 12 to 15 where he seems to feel the need to give a special rev up to these two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh, on the east side of the Jordan. Why does he need to rev them up? Well, because he's worried that once they conquer their land on the east, they'll chicken out, they'll just settle down and they won't cross the Jordan and help the rest of the tribes to possess their land. He's not worried so much about the Canaanites. He's worried about Israel. He's worried that Israel will disobey God. Now, the tribes assure him that they won't, verse 16. Uh, Then they answered Joshua, Whatever you've commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we'll go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you may command them will be put to death, only be strong and courageous. Uh, Which sounds terrific, Uh, must have been encouraging for Joshua. But then if you stop and think about it, 
when they say, as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you, you think, well, hang on a minute, because, like, they haven't actually fully obeyed Moses, have they? That's why they've been wandering in the desert for the last 40 years. And, in fact, as we go on in Israel's history, we'll discover that Israel keep disobeying God. What God and Joshua assume here actually turns out to be true, that the ultimate enemy is not the bad guys out there. It's the badness in here. The fundamental problem is not the Canaanites. It's Israel and their sin. And I think that that shows us that there is much more going on here in the book of Joshua than meets the eye. It's much more than a moderately interesting bit of Israelite history. I see the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16 writes... All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, that the person of God might be fully equipped for every good deed. And the book of Joshua is most definitely scripture, but it does kind of raise the question of, well, how is this book of ancient Israelite history useful to me? How is it helpful in teaching, rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness? How can it help to equip me for every good deed? Well, the first thing to realise is that the book of Joshua is much more than ancient history. Uh, See, our English Bibles, this is how they arrange the Old Testament, and we sort of arrange it into uh, history, writings and prophets. And Joshua fits smack in the middle of the history section. And that's right, it is history. But the Hebrew canon is actually arranged differently. Same content, but different arrangement. It divides it up into the Torah, that is the teaching, sometimes translated as the law, the Torah, the prophets and the writings. And where does Joshua fit in that? Well, it fits right there at the start of the prophets. And that's right too. Because Joshua is much more than just history, talking about what God did. It's actually prophetic history the events that happened, pointing forwards to what God would do. See, when Israel finally entered the Promised Land under Joshua, spoiler alert, they actually do, uh, their borders never quite extend as far as they are promised in verse 4. It's a little unclear as to exactly where you should draw the borders uh, of the land that is promised to Abraham and to Israel. But however you slice it or dice it, it seems like they're promised significantly more land than what they ever occupied. And yes, Israel do have Joshua as their leader, and God is with him just as he was with Moses. But, spoiler alert, the same problem that afflicts Moses at the start of the book of Joshua afflicts Joshua at the end of it. They both die. And although Israel largely conquered the Canaanites, as I said before, they succumb to their own sin. They turn away from the Lord. They become indistinguishable from the people around them. Until finally God, via the Assyrians and the Babylonians, kicks Israel out of the promised land. Israel lose their leaders, their land, and many of them, their lives. 
And at that point, it seems like sin and death have won. Have God's promises failed? Well, no. Because Joshua is not just history. It's prophetic history. It doesn't just point back. It points forward to the ultimate fulfilment of God's promises. See, the ultimate enemies of Israel were never the Canaanites. Their ultimate enemies are the same enemies that you and I face. Sin and death. The judgment of God. They're the real enemies that need to be defeated. And we can't do it. So how will God do it? Well, he does it through Joshua. Or, as you'd say in Hebrew, Yeshua. Or, as you'd say in Greek, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is the one that Joshua points forward to. He is God's ultimate leader, God's own son, who always trusted God, even to the point of death on a cross. He is the leader who was forsaken by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we might never be forsaken. He was crushed by our enemies, taking our sin and death on himself. And because he did that and rose from the dead three days later, we can be assured that our enemies have been defeated and that God will never leave us or forsake us. Jesus, the better Joshua, has shown us that he can lead the people of God into the promised land. Not a narrow strip of land in the Middle East, but not even the larger territory that is promised to Israel here, but into a whole new creation where sin and death are no more, where we will live in perfect relationship with God, his people, in his land, under his rule, under the leader Yeshua of Nazareth. That is where God was always going with the promises to Abraham. This is what the whole book of Joshua and the the land and the leader and the enemies is a picture of, a shadow of. But the reality is found in Jesus. So what's all this got to do with you as you start uh, this new phase of your life, uh, as you prepare to enter the promised land of UWA? Uh, Well, the critical thing to remember is that UWA is not the promised land. Uh, And if you think it is, if you think that UWA will provide you with hope and a future and that it'll give you all that you need to flourish and be successful in life, then UWA owns you. But the land we're looking forward to is not 65 hectares of land on the banks of the Swan River. It's not even 22,000 square kilometres on the banks of the Jordan River. It's actually the whole new creation lying on the banks of the river of life. And the leader is not the vice-chancellor. It's not even Moses or Joshua. It's the better Joshua, Jesus, who always trusted the Father and who conquered our greatest enemies, sin and death. He is the one who is able to give you hope and a future. But you might say, Ben, if Jesus controls my future, doesn't that mean that Jesus owns me? Well, yes, (laughs) that's exactly right. He does. 
I mean, he did make you. He did die for you, to buy you back from sin. Yes, he does own you. But then who would you rather be owned by? The vice chancellor? (laughs) Yourself? Are you able to defeat sin and death? Is UWA, for all its millions of dollars in research, I don't think they've made a dent in sin and death, have they? No, Jesus is the one who gives us hope and a future. And if we follow Jesus, as Israel followed Joshua that day, then your hope is certain. You will enter the promised land, just as Israel did. But this time you won't be entering the shadow. You won't be walking into the cardboard model. You'll be entering the real thing. Not a strip of land in the Middle East, but the new creation. Eternal life under God's better Joshua, Jesus. So is there anything that could stop that from happening? Well, yeah, actually, there is one thing. You could decide not to follow Jesus. And how might that happen? My guess is that it won't happen because you've been outthought by your fellow students or even by the professors. Secular culture actually has incredibly weak explanations for almost everything that matters. It has very weak explanations. It can't explain where our world came from. It can't explain why we matter, why your life has meaning. It can't explain why there's good and evil. It can't even explain why reason and logic are a thing. The risk for us is not that we'll be outthought. The risk like it was for Israel, is that we'll be out-discipled. It wasn't that the pagans around Israel had better explanations for the world or stronger gods. They didn't. What got Israel in the end was temptation to just fit in with the cultures around them. The temptation to intermarry with the Canaanites, the attractions of a sex and wealth-obsessed culture. Sound familiar? And little by little, they found themselves drifting away from the Lord. And in my experience, that's what gets Christian uni students too. It's not that you get attacked by roving bands of militant atheists. It's that you meet a boy. And, yeah, no, he's he's not Christian, but, look, he's really nice. (laughs) A lot nicer than most of the Christian blokes I've met. (laughs) Fellas, time to lift your game. (laughs) And, yeah, I I know that he can't really help me serve Jesus, and I I know I probably shouldn't be going out with him, but, gee, he's nice. It's not that Christianity can't stand up to the secular professors. It's that you've been watching porn for the last five years and you don't want to give it up. I mean, everyone else is doing it. Why can't I? I'd rather get off on porn than get on board with Jesus. It's not that you wake up one morning and decide that you're going to hate Jesus. It's that we listen to the voices around us in our culture saying that if you follow them, if you do what they do, then they've got the solution to your anxiety and they can give you a future and they can show you a way to a a sort of more inclusive spirituality. All you need to do is shut up about Jesus and just sort of do what everyone else is doing. Worship what they worship. It's not the head-on collision 
It's the slow drip, drip, drip of the surrounding culture, telling us what to think, how to behave, how to fit in, how to get along. And sometimes it just feels easier to go with the flow, doesn't it? Just join all the other dead fish floating downstream. What will help us to swim against the tide? What will help us to be strong and courageous? Well, what does God say to Joshua here? He says, Obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night. That's how you'll be prosperous and successful. It's actually by holding on to God's word, to his promises, trusting that when he tells us how to live, he knows what he's talking about. Much more than the surrounding culture, which, um, frankly, is deeply confused about almost everything. Uh, And it would be laughable if it wasn't so tragic. No, it's hearing God's word, being reminded of his promises, being reminded that God, through his great leader, Yeshua of Nazareth, has already defeated our worst enemies, and that in following him we have nothing to fear, because through him God will bring us safely into his promised land, into eternal life in the new creation. That's actually what will help our souls to prosper and succeed. That's what will help us to be strong and courageous. So the question I have for you is this year, will you hold on to the promises of God? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have shown your faithfulness in Jesus. Please help us to hang on to him, to be strong and courageous. And we ask it in his name. Amen. All right, it's 1.42. We've got a couple of minutes before we wrap up. Uh, So I want to give you a chance to ask any questions uh, if you'd like to. So... Uh, If anyone's got any questions uh, about the passage in particular, um, this is your chance. Yeah, it's... This one? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. Maybe they had more people in them. I'm not really sure. It's much less fertile land as well. Right. There you go. It's less fertile land too. All right. Uh, Well, if you do have any more questions afterwards, uh, come and grab me. I'd love to chat with you. But for the moment, I'm going to hand back over to Laura. Where is Laura? There she is. Great.